Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hey everyone, it's Mickey here. You're listening to Wikipedia, and this week on the podcast. I chat to Ryan O'Connor, optometrist and podcast host of the Stag Raw podcast. And we talk all about Ryan's interest in metabolic health and eye health. We discuss the risk factors for some commonly seen eye conditions, including glaucoma, retinopathy, age-related macular degeneration, AMD, and cataracts, and the relationship with metabolic health. And we talk about why it matters what we eat for our eye health. We also discuss protocols he suggests to help protect our eyes as we age with some practical tips to support eye health, including supplements. In addition, we discuss how Ryan got interested in metabolic health and how it began around the time of a severe concussion that put him on the sidelines as an up-and-coming rugby player. So those of you unfamiliar with the Stag Raw podcast, of which I have been a guest, and Ryan has some great people on, Ryan is an optometrist by day in Hamilton and podcast host of, as I said, the Stag Raw podcast. And he likes to explore on the show what success means and how individuals from different backgrounds go about achieving it. As a practicing optometrist, his special interests are in behavioral optometry, sports vision, and traumatic brain injury recovery. His qualifications include a BSc in anatomy, neurology and reproduction, and a Bachelor of Optometry. Ryan is a keen sportsman with a long history in rugby, swimming, soccer, ultra running, and water polo, and is a keen outdoorsman as well with 10 years experience exploring in and around New Zealand. You can find Ryan's personal blog at stagryan.com and also touch base with him at stagryan on Instagram and it is well worth listening to his podcast. It is awesome. I learned a lot from Ryan with this discussion so I really hope that you will too. Just before we hit go on the interview, I'd like to remind you the best way to support Wikipedia is to click like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and then tell your mates about it to increase the awareness of our show in the absolute massive field of podcasts that are out there. That would be amazing. All right, team, enjoy the conversation that I have with Ryan O'Connor. Ryan, you're the host of Stag Raw podcast, and which I, of course, had the honour of being a guest on. I believe maybe even a year or eighteen months ago was a no, while it was ago. Early, earlier this year. Yeah, around was it really? Yeah, around about March or something like that. Yeah, time feels like a like You've it's done some a sort of vacuum. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what it was? That that post COVID, I've got to go out and. And do all the things that we couldn't do when mm. we were all locked down. I think I had a bit of that going on. But God, I, isn't it funny how time has that uh, ability to feel like, you know, each day sometimes feels incredibly long, yet you blink 
and months have passed. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, so interesting. So anyway, you're the host of Stag Raw Podcast, which is this awesome podcast based around health and wellness and speaking to experts, not only in that space as well, because I know that you're a keen sort of hunter and outdoorsman as mm. well. Um, and you're an optometrist by day. That's right. Yeah, one or two. <laughs> well, yeah. And uh, so you've got this passion for health, well-being, and metabolism, and I wonder whether many people would be able to find the synergies between your day job and, of course, your passion and around metabolism and, of course, how you are able to then bring information to people via your podcast. So how did you get into that area of metabolism and or explore that within the context of eye health? Yeah, I think it was just um, a culmination, really, like – my dad was a physics teacher growing up, and my mum was a laboratory technician. So I remember at like eight years old drawing bacteria on a slide, and and I like left it in in their office at work, and they ended up putting it on the fridge type type stuff, and they're like, "Well, that was pretty cool," and <laughs> and just like hanging out in the science labs at James Harkins College in Invercargill, and just being like, "Oh yeah, what's what's this about?" And you know, dad would have the odd experiment set up for their labs and stuff like that. So seeing, seeing phys physical things like that. So, And then at 12, I saw my brother get his eyes tested and I was like, that's bloody cool. This is science, but a job and you get to interact with people all day. So I think that's where the sciencey stuff came came along. And I was like, right, how do you do that? You go to Auckland University, you get into optometry, you'd be an optometrist. Um, little, little did I realise that the sort of – um, study the night before, do the practice exams that I'd done in NCA was not quite what was needed for a um, 40% weighted multi 50 multi-choice question in chemistry and I think human body <laughs> systems. And I got 50% in, 49% in those and went, oh shit, I've <laughs> blown it in the first term of this, <laughs> this thing. So I sort of had the like next three um, terms of university that – try to work my ass off and figure out how to study and knowing full well that I probably wasn't going to get into optometry. Um, I got waitlisted at 26 and there was 52 spots and they told me usually about half the people get into med and decline their offer. And so I found out on Waitangi Day that I hadn't got in and then I had to make this decision like, do I carry on with biomedical science, like human body systems and stuff? I really enjoyed reproduction um, or do I just scrap it and go be an engineer like my older brother and go to Canterbury and um, with a little bit of leeway of I'd met a girl over summer and I went to Dunedin instead and, and carried on but um, biomedical science was uh, reproduction and genetics and I did well in anatomy and genetics and bio well, I was okay in biochemistry but genetics was like a foreign language and so I just like right I need the marks because I still want to be an optometrist went into anatomy and in that third year like I said, I'd done well in anatomy. They asked me to do research um, in preparation to maybe do honours. Um, and I did neuroscience, reproduction, and cellular anatomy. So, you know, I had this, and, and in the biochemistry and the, and the genetics, had this sort of understanding of like super microscopic level and then then like going out to the broader thing. And, and in that third year, I did a bit of zoology, some neurophysiology, um, and um, sports nutrition 
which I thought would have been easy because I was, I was doing like pre-academy for rugby and we're learning, learning about coaching and, you know, protein and <laughs> how, to get, how to get bigger and all that sort of stuff. And like a couple of people in, in my anatomy class who were trying to get into medicine who were very good sports people, we all just bombed the paper. We got like C's and, and thought, what did we do wrong? <laughs> oh, mate. It's funny, actually. And do you know what? Like, it's like when you were describing your first year of university, you should have pretty much described probably 60% of those who go to university, their experience. You know, you 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 seem to get pretty far on natural, quote unquote, natural ability. Some people, you know, and then you sort of just try to rely on it and then it does sort of backfire a little bit. I've got to say my 52 in chemistry and in biochemistry, I was so proud. Mm. They were my absolute lowest marks ever, but man, I just wanted to get through for nutrition. So uh, I appreciate what you're saying. Yeah, we had that in our first year back to in, in the optometry school, um, lens systems and, and ray, ray physics. And that was the first paper I got back. It was one of these things that's an open book exam, but of course that means they can ask you anything. And yeah, that was the first result I got back. I think I got C plus, and I was like, "Oh, good, I've passed everything." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> through, the, through the next year, <laughs> if I got through that, I got I've got through everything else. Yeah. yeah. So um, then, Ryan, you've got obviously this uh, this passion for sort of science and learning and maybe problem solving. When did you get into metabolism in a more sort of focused way? Because obviously you would have studied it in, in parts of your study, but when did it become part of the thing that you do and the thing that you think about? Yeah, I think the first seed was um, sowed when I was doing that pre-honours paper. I, I can't remember his name, but it was in Otago. Um, I wrote a proposal to study ghrelin's signaling and ghrelin, um, no, not ghrelin, uh, leptin. leptin, sorry, yeah. leptin yeah, resistance. Yeah. yeah. And so the whole idea of that you could be resistant to a hormone was there. And then I carried on for four years of optometry, just like trying to get through the bloody thing. And I sort of had always struggled um, about half an hour into my rugby training. I'd be incredibly fit, but then I get stomach cramps. And then somewhere around about the third or fourth year, I was in Auckland. Um, one of the trainers said, try paleo, throw away the bread. And like that, I could train, no worries, stop stomach cramps and all that sort of stuff. Interesting. But I didn't really associate the gluten-free type thing. And then come the end of uni, you know, there's, you know, trips to McDonald's. There's um, there's a there's a bakery, a bar now that has amazing, like, um, croissants and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and then moved to Christchurch. Uh, playing rugby again, like focusing on. I had a year off rugby, so I had to focus on nutrition and strength and all that sort of stuff. And you know, noticing these things about about that. And then somewhere around 2016, Keegan Smith started talking about the ketogenic diet, and and also these inflammatory processes that is sort of starting to link with rugby league players and injuries. And he was sort of get, bringing in paleo concepts, ketogenic concepts um of course the prove it stuff started to, to happen um and again keegan introduced me to that the exogenous ketones and so i started looking into that started seeing links with um epilepsy diabetes concussion um i'd had concussion 13 17 um 20 and then i ended up in 2017 having a major one um broken my nose as well so like yeah just all, all 
been a little bit of a geek, just like trying to find edges and things, being a bit of a battler in rugby, like playing on the cusp between Division One and, and and reserves. Um, like I tried to play sevens for Southland a couple of times and, and was non-javering reserve twice, tried to play sevens for Canterbury, went to a, went to a tournament in, in the Mount, but then was non-javering reserve again the next week. So, yeah, I was always on that like, cusp of things and trying to find edges and things and, and metabolism, sports nutrition was always, always sort of there. And then... At the end of that 2016, in August, we had a conference in, in Queenstown and Grant Schofield. For work? For work, yeah. So yeah, it was yeah. called Snow Vision and Grant Schofield presented two really awesome talks. I was already exploring this ketogenic thing and that was kind of like, oh yeah, there's something here. And he's talked about Warburg effect and all that sort of stuff. So that's where I, like every spare moment of of my day if I had gaps or, or you know, 10 minutes here, I'd start reading papers on all this stuff to try and understand, like, what is it about genetics, uh, sorry, metabolism and diabetes? What is it about metabolism and concussion? And, yeah, so that was somewhere around there, end of 2016. Yeah, and were you um... – was that when you begun to make the link with the work that you do or was that all part of it as you were sort of um, reading or did that sort of come later? I think it was part of it because I just remembered I had an, another concussion in, <laughs> in, when I was in that seven steam in Canterbury. And so when I came to the Waikato, I wanted to help people with with um, post-concussion syndrome um, because there's a lot of behavioural optometry things. Um, you're focusing and your pupils are very linked between your sympathetic sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. And so convergence and focus tend to fail, um, especially in people who are long-sighted. They all of a sudden especially lose the ability to read and also if they'll lose the ability to see far away even though they're long-sighted just because their eye muscle can't constrict anymore and change their lens to focus, their long distance goes blurry as well. Is that because of a sympathetic nervous system response? Yeah, sympathetic overload, yeah. Oh, wow. I saw that you wrote, actually, this is a little bit of a tangent, and we'll get back to what we were talking about, but I saw you wrote an article about teenagers and yeah. their stress response and what you're seeing. And I believe this was in October 2021, which from and that was sort of at the it was even though you're in the Waikato you would have been on the fringes of the Auckland lockdown mm. I think at the time maybe yeah and it's been amazing this year not seeing it so much but then last week I had two two cases of it and, it's just, and I was like when were you studying when did you finish exams I'm like oh it's a couple of weeks ago how long has it been like oh about three or four weeks I'm like I ate good. Looked at their pupils. Like the girl that I had last week, her pupils were like nine millimeters, which is massive. They constricted down to maybe six, which is still big, and then bounced straight back out to nine millimeters. I was like, oh yeah. And she was like a tiny bit long sighted. And so without her glasses, she was getting headaches and struggling to see, put the glasses on. She was fine, but she couldn't read. Give her extra power. She could read again. And then I was, you can do this thing where you introduce, um, power to activate the muscle and power to t relax the muscle in both ways. The, the, her muscle was really locked in, in place, so every time she would change her focal point, her focal length, sorry, she'd lose focus for a period of time, and that was really frustrating. Um, yeah. So does that is that resolve over time when the sympathetic nervous system 
response is able to switch off more naturally yeah. so, along with the with the exercises? Yeah, so yeah, the, you can sort of train the visual system or train the nervous system. And so, you know, I spoke, spoke about, you know, you can do these jump ductions, which are focusing on a near um, text or like your um, numbers on your watch or something on your phone and then focusing on something far away. So like for me here, I could look at the little Samsung on my microphone and then look across and see Samsung on the TV and just jump back and forth. Now, mine's quite dynamic at the moment, but post-concussion, I might be really slow on one or both of those. And so you can do that. And then I'm also suggesting that they get outside, you know, maybe do something like yoga or Pilates or, you know, and, I, and then I sort of mentioned we might do, want to do something extreme like a cold cold immersion or a sauna or <laughs> jump in the lake, get in nature, um, you know, get sleep, consider taking some fish oil for a period of time, you know, make sure you, you, your nutrition is, you know, low loading, um, you know, the whole like high protein, slow cooked, bioavailable type stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So all of those um, tactics, they are working on resolving the stress response and calming the central nervous system and also the outer nature. Because I've actually, I've seen research where they've talked about the the modern environment because we're in these, you know, four, four walls, for want of a better term, we're in front of screens, um, either there or, or close close to us we don't we no longer see many horizons mm. or different depths and so your strategy to help someone if they have eye issues that are stress related is it to work on stress but also change their visual sort of settings yeah and so so something really basic one of the basic rules that probably applies to every single person is the 20 20 20 rule and so that's american um 20 feet you want to look beyond beyond 20 feet um every 20 minutes and blink 20 times and especially when you're on a, on a screen you're blinking at about a 40 percent of your normal rate when you're reading book you're reading at about 60 percent of your normal blink rate um and so that's the other side of it is like but that just gives you a sort of a time frame to like look far away and blink 20 times <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 that's such a great tip um okay so back to then your i'm sorry because i led us down that oh, um, tangent which which yeah which i think is really useful actually um the so you became more interested in how metabolism sort of affected the eye um and do you eat like huberman said in a podcast that the the eyeballs are the only part of the brain that we can see. Is that what you learned? Is that is that how it is? Yeah, I don't. Know, I don't know if I learned that, but I definitely felt that. Um, like doing embryology and seeing like brain outcrop and make an eyeball. We do embryology in biomed, and then we did embryology in optometry. And I think because I'd done that loop around with anatomy, it, it landed and. And then same with like nervous tissue and physiology and anatomy. Again, I just sort of saw it that way that it's it's like a, a, a brain thing. And like um I think it's three of the cranial nerves, no, four of the cranial nerves are involved with the eye. And, and so again, it's like that that brainstem interaction, like there's and there's lots of decisions that are made in the retina before even going to the brain. And then lots of lots of those cranial nerve decision making that just sort of bounce back and forth from from the um, brainstem without even going to higher function. Um sort of for higher function uh, neural activity with vision, 
it's going all the way to the occipital load and then up and over um and it you know it's it's swaps over it splits and in, into vertical and, and parts of it and so it's yeah a lot of the so when when you do a visual field you can sort of pinpoint if there's a defect in it where along the visual pathway there's say a stroke or an injury and so yeah there's there's a lot of neurophysiology going on in the course um and it was really funny in zoology talking about schrodinger's cats and the experiments they did where they closed the eyelids of cats and looked at the brain function and then going into optometry and then being retold it again, that was really helpful for me. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. Again, again in optometry, because I was sort of playing sport all the time, I was a bit of a battler in that as well, sort of just below the B+, plus, so I didn't quite get the honours out of the four years. But, um, yeah, learning something twice was really helpful, and I actually ended up getting an A+, plus in the in the neurovisual uh, physiology paper, and it was just like... It was just like one of my proud moments. <laughs> oh, totally. You know what? It's that repetition, eh? Yeah. Like I love and I there are so many things in my everyday life which I listen to and then hear, hear it again in a different context or said a different way. And over time you just solidify an idea or a um uh you know, a thought or whatever it is. So then it is just much more you know it so much more, yeah. I think. Yeah, I was, I was retelling my, my colleague Jagger Lalu on Tuesday night how, oh, Monday night, sorry, how one of our sort of skills that we did in the anatomy degree was to label the optic nerve of a, of a mice and then, um, you know, do the cranial sections. And so I'd already had that that visualisation of, of the pathways. So that to then reach optometry and, and think about this as part of the brain was, yeah, I don't know, that probably developed why I think think about it the way I do. Yeah, nice. So Ryan, can we do a bit of a 101 as to the really common eye conditions that people see and then how their prevalence rates or um, yeah, how that might have increased over time and then, you know, what some of the risk factors are? Because, you know, some of these conditions we I see a bit in the science literature and related to diet and lifestyle. But for others, they might only know them in the context of, well, my grandmother had glaucoma. Mm. So, and, and that's about it. So, so can we, well, let's start with glaucoma. So what is it? Who's at risk? And are these kind of things increasing? Yeah, so glaucoma has that genetic link. Um, it's thought of quite closely with Alzheimer's. And so, again, that sort of type 3 diabetes message rings true in my head. Um, I have it on both sides of my family, um, so i am got a pretty high risk profile. I ended up being short-sighted, so I have an increase, increased risk profile. Um, and it's a progressive loss of nerves from the eye and... Originally, they sort of saw the association with eye pressure, and there's a form of it which, which is called angle closure glaucoma, where the iris, the colour part of the eye, and the cornea, the clear part of the eye, stick to each other, and so the fluid that fills the eye can't get out, and the eye pressure raises, and that rapidly kills the nerve. So they they still haven't really explained exactly what happens there, whether it's the pressure onto the nerve, pinching the nerve, stopping the perfusion of the nerve or something. Um, but they uh, will relieve that adhesion between the cornea and the iris 
um, often all they need to do is put a hole into the iris and the iris will bow back and that channel, drainage channel opens up and the eye pressure is relieved and everything's fine. Um, or there's sort of primary open angle glaucoma or even, and, and that's where the pressure's raised and slowly they lose their nerve. And there's also normal tension glaucoma. So it seems to be sort of a relative to the individual type thing. And the way they treat it is they try and lower the eye pressure, ideally by 30%. So when we're, we're assessing glaucoma, um, we're looking at that optic nerve. Is it a funny shape? We're measuring eye pressure. Is it higher than 21? That's a greater risk. And do you have a family history of it? That's a sort of a five or six times increased risk. Um, do you have conditions like blood pressure, um, migraines, rhinoids disease, um, inflam inflammation? Um, are you taking steroid medications? Uh, they all sort of, this big, big cluster. So we compare the optic nerves over time. If we see any change, um, if we see little hemorrhages at the edge of it, then we'll do further testing. So we do a visual field, which is um, a neurophysiological test. Um, it's a subjective test to see the sensitivity of the peripheral vision because that's what goes first. We map the optic nerve head with um, a thing called ocular coherent tomography, OCT, and that bounces light off the layers in the retina and um, the computer program separates out all the layers and gives you these beautiful pictures and compares those to a, to a database of people and tries to fit you within what are called aged matched normals. So. Yeah, a, a group of, of the population, what's their sort of um, distribution of nerve thicknesses. You've got to sort of apply the individual to to the, the comparison and then also looking at it over the time helps. Um, and then you also measure the thickness of the ganglion cells which come from all through the retina and then they arrive at that optic nerve. And again, you look at the relative thickness of that based on the age. So yeah, yeah. Um, Catching that is basically having a, an eye exam. Um, if you were noticing that part of your visual field is gone, you've probably lost about 50% of your nerves and you're probably no longer legal to drive. And does that, and because of the, you mentioned that, you know, it's related to blood pressure and inflammation and, and things like that, are we seeing increased prevalence in numbers of people being diagnosed with glaucoma? I Ryan, think it's somewhere between six and eight percent. Okay. Yeah. So I think I think it's just a, a, a pocket of the population. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know how much it's in, increasing in terms of the percentage of the population, but yeah, that's that's been the number for for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've only been in the career for um, eight eight years and, and four years of uni. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Probably have to ask my boss who's, who's been doing it for 40 odd years. Yeah, no, no, this is good. <laughs> or 50 good. years, actually, yeah. Yeah. And, and what about um, uh, retinopathy? Is yep. that right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that, that's that's the one I, I hate seeing um, because it's largely, my, I, I don't know if you'd say completely preventable in type 1 diabetics, but we've got a couple of like, type ones in their 90s who have immaculate retinas and you kind of go i don't think there's an excuse yeah interesting <laughs> it's, but you know you, you you don't live their life so that, that's probably yeah, a little yeah. bit facetious to say but i appreciate what you're saying yeah yeah but you know um 
and I sort of said to you, and I said to my, my mate Jagger on, on the on the weekend, I'd love for the Type One Grit cohort to release what their retina retinas look like and track that group. Um, and then it, and then uh, Type One Grit. Type One Grit. Yep. 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 Um, who who runs that? Uh, it would be RD. Yeah, Dykeman. Dykeman. Yeah, and who who ran the paper in two thousand and eighteen? Upton, Lipton. Oh, uh, Unwin was it Unwin? Unwin? No, uh, is it Ludwig. Up, Upton, Ludwig. Yeah, it might have been Ludwig. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. So, um, I'd love for them to track their diabetic retinopathy. Yeah. Um, and then with with short sightedness, I'd love for the type one grit to be tracked on that as well, because there's. A high prevalence of short-sightedness and myopia in Asia and sort of in India as well. And the carbohydrate intake of those populations are obviously very high. And when, um, I think, 2000 and, yeah, the end of 2018, we had a conference around myopia control, so trying to prevent short-sightedness from happening because um, this, it's sort of estimated that about 20% of New Zealand has short-sightedness. And any level of short-sightedness increases your risk of uh, macular degeneration, glaucoma, and retinal detachments, and, incre- and increases the onset of cataract, which is hazing of the lens. And that, I think they're expecting Asia to be about 50% pretty sh- shortly, and um, it's climbing worldwide. And so the question was raised at this conference by one of the guys in the States that Maybe there's a diet aspect to this. And I sort of said to him, well, what would be really fascinating to compare is a standard cohort of type 1 diabetes with, mm. you know, A1Cs 60, maybe even to 100 in those teenage years um, and high doses of insulin versus type 1 grit that have HbA1Cs in the 30s and are using low amounts of insulin and, and probably more like a regular pancreas um, function. It'd be fascinating to look at incidents of that. So the trouble is that, you know, with a cohort of 400 people, 20% is not that many people, but, you know, hey, they, they might have a lower percentage. They might be 10%, whereas a regular cohort might be higher, might be 30%. So that'd be a fascinating question that I'd love to see answered. Have you written, have you written to them? And no, I, I've always I've thought about. It. <laughs> yeah. There you go. There's yeah. your next step. Next um, so yeah. So what is it about um, the blood sugar control that impacts on the eye, Ryan? So fascinating, this morning I was trying to find a, um, last month, uh, must be macular degeneration awareness, and one of the Australasian publications had about um, the impact of fasting. There's, there's three, three rat models, which two of them showed a reduction in the accumulation of the waste product in the retina, which is called drusen, that leads to damage of the uh, light-reacting cells called photoreceptors, which is what macular degeneration is. It's a loss of those. And so they saw, saw an improvement in these two rat models through fasting, and then the third rat model didn't show any benefit. So a group in Korea have done a retrospective study where they've looked at people who, or, or based on a food frequency questionnaire who skipped breakfast, and that reduced and had macular degeneration, and it reduced their progression of macular degeneration. And... I, when I was in Hawkspace, suggested it to some people because, like, macular degeneration, there's nothing really to do. Like, it's kind of hope for the best situation. Like, there's no real treatments. So we suggest to people, they avoid processed seed oil. If they're smoking, stop smoking. Um, 
and try consume uh, low inflammatory foods. Um, the idea is fish green and gold, so oily fish, green leafy vegetables, eggs and raw nuts. Avoid the processed seed oils. Um, and you know, I then sort of said, and maybe fasting helps. And this person's drusen was pretty bad. And I actually observed on that OCT, the scan, these buildups reduce. And so there's an end of one. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, but still something. Yeah, it's something yeah. that I've talked about with with Grant Schofield about um, doing a master's in public health with. And and again, it's one of those things that you're like, oh, one day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, totally, yeah. totally. So yeah. um, well, that's super interesting. What is it about the diet foods that they need to avoid? Mm. That would it, it impacts negatively on their health in in your uh, I don't know opinion or from your research or whatever. Yeah, it's it's merely opinion, um, and so again, that's where having looked at cellular anatomy is quite handy to think about it. So this this layer that surrounds the retina called the retinal pigmented epithelium is kind of a specialized immune cell. So the reason why it's pigmented is it's full of melanin to absorb all the energy, that light energy, and this massive reaction that goes on in the photoreceptors. So it's it's an energy sink. And then outside of that is this massive um, intertwined uh, capillary layer called the choriocapillaris. Um, and so it's just this web. And so they are basically taking all that heat out of the retina so that your eyeball doesn't fry, basically. And at the macula, you have a really high concentration of these photoreceptors, which are um, the cones and very sensitive to light. Um, that's where you get your fine detail vision. And so it's a massive sort of energy sapping area and there's no vascular supply. So all of all of the, the energy needs to be taken away out the bottom, out through this pigmented layer. And when a photoreceptor reacts to light, it changes its membrane and the RPE gives gives um, the retinol back to the, the photoreceptor and cleaves off the used up segment of this photoreceptor. So it's con con kind of gobbling up the used up retina as it goes, kind of like a macrophage. And then it um, sort of excretes the waste of the retina out into that choriocapillaries and through the basement membrane. And in macular degeneration, that kind of doesn't happen and you get this buildup of of these drusens and then they create inflammation, further inflammation and damage. And so if you're thinking about it of like the, um, the immune cycle and induction of inflammation, so the inflammatory cycle, induction of inflammation driven by omega-6 and resolution of, of inflammation driven by omega-3 and you're consuming processed seed oils at sort of a 40 to 1 ratio instead of, you know, cold-pressed oils or, or, you know, lard, ghee, butter, that sort of stuff, sort of three or four to one, then you're driving this excessive cleaving of the photoreceptor, perhaps. Um, you're perhaps building the photoreceptor cell wall with higher omega-6 and omega-3, making it more volatile. And because it's such a high-energy reaction, that volatility creates excessive reaction oxygen species and more, more inflammation. And, you know, that's the sort of idea around why that that food could be a problem on the flip side the lutein and zeaxanthin that you're getting from um, green leafy vegetables or the choline that you're getting from eggs might be dampening that um, inflammatory cycle 
And then the omega-3 fatty acids are creating these nice heat-stable sort of and, and you know, what the, what the membrane's supposed to be made out of and, and allowing that sort of resolution of this buildup. So that's that's kind of my interpretation of why it might work. The, the information comes from two studies called the AREDS2 study, age-related eye disease study. The first iteration, they sort of found um, beta-carotenoids in the zinc. Um, you, you spoke about that in, in your questions. Um, and then they found that beta-carotene beta increased the risk of lung cancer in people who had smoked. Yeah, it was high dose, yeah. really high dose synthetic, I think. Um, uh, and because at higher doses, those antioxidants become pro-oxidant, uh, right. I think is what they thought. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, smoking, like most things, being sort of four times risk factor for macular degeneration. Yes. Um, it probably wasn't good that good to do it. So ARIDS 2, they adapted beta-carotene to lutein and zeaxanthine, and they've just recently reviewed it, and it hadn't increased the risk for um, lung cancer. So that was... That was where that comes from. So lifestyle-wise, fish green and gold, and then there's a supplement that's lutein, zeaxanthin, and zinc. Yeah. Okay. So um, a couple of what well, a comment, and then a, a well, my I'll ask a question first. That supplement that you just mentioned, can people purchase a supplement that is zeaxanthin, lutein, and zinc? Yeah. So most, I think. Um, most of them are called Macu something, um, like Macu Shield, Macu Vision, Macu Tech. Um, Which one's clim- the best? <laughs> they're, they're, they should be AREDS2 formula. It's a standard formula. And so that's what you need to look for, AREDS2. Um, we've got clinicians at work. Um, I quite like Macu Shield and Macu Tech as well because they're um, one tablet twice a day. Um, Blackmore's Macuvision, unfortunately, I think is two in the morning, two in the night, and then another two lutein with it. They didn't join the two together, which was a bummer. Um, so that's that's why I less like that one because it's like t- too many too many um, supplements to take. But yeah, they're all they're all doing the same thing. It's just the you know the way that they come type thing. Yeah. yeah. And who should think about taking the zinc that that Macu hmm. Shield? Yeah, and it and it's it's kind of like if it's in your family history, probably probably take it. Yeah. Yeah. If you've got any drusen, so again, if you're having an eye exam and and the optometrist points out drusen in there, it's probably a good idea to take um, an average two, or at least consider the fish green and gold type thing. Um, maybe start implementing some form of fasting. Um, like I said, there's kind of no real treatment, but there's, you know, ways ways to to help, and and it's probably going to help in other aspects of your health. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Hey, um, Ryan, does you mean, with the fasting how that sort of depletes the drusen? Mm. Does does exercise do the same thing? Yes, yeah, and so in our sort of handout from Macula Degeneration New Zealand, it talks about um, exercise, and interestingly, it talks about low GI carbohydrates as well. Um, yeah, whatever that means. But I think they're more getting at getting at sort of um, whole food rather yeah, than processed yeah. food. Yeah, yeah, nice. And do you think that insulin has a role to play within that um, the diet stuff that you're talking about? And the reason I ask is because I was just 
talking to Marty Kendall this morning um, about his optimizing nutrition course. Do you know Marty? Have no, you heard of him? No. Oh my God, you must have him on the Stag Raw podcast. For sure. Where you, I will send you a few of his links. He is amazing. And he talks about diet from an energy toxicity perspective. Mm-hmm. And of course, when you eat a, a, a oh, quote say, unquote, modern diet, Marty Kendall. Kendall. No, I'm, yeah. I'm thinking of um, Matt Phillips. <laughs> ah, yes, no, I spoke to him actually also quite recently who's who speaks around the same stuff. Yeah. Um, and just the idea that, you know, uh, it's less about the pro-inflammatory nature of omega-6s, although having said that, if they're going to destabilize that membrane, then, then they will have a particular role there. But that people overconsume them because they're part of that modern diet. So, mm. And then, of course, a lot of the foods that have the omega-6s are also high in starch and sugar, so they're going to elicit that, that sort of insulin response. Do we know much about insulin's role? No. It's, and, and I always think about like insulin-like growth factor, um, yeah, I'm always like curious, like what's happening there. Um, again, the, the the sort of obesity model that there was more more and larger blood vessels in that choroid layer. I was like, hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> Wonder what that means, you know, or why that happens if you're obese. Why are there more and bigger blood vessels around the retina? I was like, that's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I just read it today and I was like, oh. I wonder what that means. I wonder what yeah. the root root of that is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, Brian, sort of a slight tangent, but you you were talking about the retina, the cones behind the eyes, and and things like that. Um, is there any link between people who have vision problems and circadian rhythm? Um, that 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 specifically is part of the short sightedness story. So, um. I did a summer studentship while I was there, and we looked at light exposure. And so there's a there's a way to induce short sightedness in chicks where you occlude one of their eyes and they grow really fast. And then we had different light treatments and saw that the growth of the eye was less when there was more light. Um, sort of a crossover with that study is they put light meters on kids in a large array of schools in Auckland and again they sort of saw a trend towards less short-sightedness. There's a comparative study between uh, Chinese immigrants in Taiwan and Sydney and again the Sydney children um, had less short-sightedness than the Taiwan children. The assumption was that recent immigrants would still have a similar diet, similar educational aspirations and similar studying times and just that sort of outdoorsness of of Sydney versus the indoorsness of Taiwan probably had an effect. Um, While I was at uni, they sort of thought about it like the induction of sleep and the sleep sleep period um, probably has an effect. like Matthew Walker and, and Huberman as well talk about those, you know, two AM sort of flips between um, deep sleep and then more rapid eye movement sleep, and so yeah, that's what we're always sort of talking about with our kids is like get outside in the morning in the middle of the day, um, give you that real massive peak of light, and then it's hopeful that when you get into bed you fall asleep and you have those good hours of deep sleep. And then you can enjoy those 
four or five hours of, of rapid eye movement dream sleep and feel refreshed. And of course, then there's the whole like depression side of things and, and serotonin side of things. Um, one of our treatments for myopia is applying atropine, so blocking acetylcholine, and that stops the growth of the eye. And it's like, okay, so what's that got to do with sleep and sleep hormones and, you know, these you know good nutrition and serotonin and all that sort of stuff and so it's just so much um crossover with all these types of things and light and sleep and circadian rhythms and then again um back to glaucoma the we often get people to run a sleep study um sleep sleep apnea and glaucoma get people put people on a cpap you know they reverse their diabetes and their glaucoma stops oh wow <laughs> yeah it's it's yeah so it's not an island, eh? The, the the eyes aren't an island. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So it's all—I mean, everything is in, is connected. So you mentioned myopia, so that's short-sightedness. That? Yeah, short-sightedness. So okay. Yeah, the there's real risky zone for short-sightedness is sort of eight to twelve. Or, you know, as young as possible, but up to the age of twelve. And a typical myopia progression. Is sort of 0.25 per year. So if we're getting an eight-year-old come in and they're already minus one, um, and that continues to progress until they're 25, well then, you know, that they'll, they'll maybe be going along at 0.5 a year, and so that they've got 15 more years, so they could end up being minus seven and a half. And so when when you sort of get above minus six, the risk of retinal detachment is massive. It's something like um, odds ratio of 30, 30 times type stuff. Uh, minus three is only about four, and then min- above minus four is about 12 or so. Yeah. And then at a recent conference we had, the um, professor from Auckland, John Phillips, was talking about how when it came to macular degeneration, minus three had about a, a 12 odds ratio. Mm. And we all kind of went in the room like, Oh, and he hammered home the point is like, you know, you guys think that as a minus four, that's a high risk for retinal detachment, but as a minus three, that's a high, you know, that's the same risk for macular degeneration, which is potentially going to cause blindness. You know, we we really need to get on top of this thing. So, um, John was part of a, a, a study group that designed a soft contact lens that you can see clearly through, but at the same time, it's projecting. Um, defocus so a focal length in front of the retina so you're seeing clearly but at the same time you're getting a focal length in front of the retina and that slowed the growth of the eye by 50 percent. so instead of that child ending up as minus seven they end up as minus 3.5 closer to that lower risk of retinal detachment lower risk lower odds ratio sorry of of macular degeneration and glaucoma um, atropine has about the same 50 to 60 percent depending on the dosage what is atropine is it some medication um, for yeah it's a acetylcholine blocker um, and so we use it diagnostically at one percent and so that when we're trying to get the real focal length of a young eye usually in the case of their long-sighted so their focal length is behind the eye um, because the lens in their eye is so flexible and the um, the eye muscle doesn't have to flex much to then move move the lens to be more round, bring the focus forward onto the retina and then see clearly. Um, so we apply, um, we don't actually use atropine for this often, but you could use atropine or a thing called sarcopentolate and it blocks the focusing muscle. So their 
focusing muscle is completely relaxed, like that person that's had a concussion or is stressed, their, their focusing muscle, their parasympathetic is not working. Um, and and we can measure the true focal length of the eye. Now that drop at 0.05% was shown to slow myopia progression um, by, by 60%. And we can even use it at 0.02 or 0.01, and this 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 is sort of a hot debate in in optometry at the moment. Like, what what do you do? Because my progression seems to happen faster, younger. So, and you're doing less reading and things like that. So maybe using the higher dose is better earlier. But then there's the whole thing of like lowest effective dose, and so yeah, there's a bit bit of debate around. Do you start with 0.01 or with the lowest side effects, or do you start with 0.05 have the greatest effect? But maybe 0.01 would have been enough. So, yeah, that's that's what that's that. And so, but yeah, that sort of parasympathetic blocking um, drop it does that does that for things. And then we also have um, a hard contact lens that you sleep in, orthokeratology. And what that does is it flattens the cornea for you, so you can see clearly straight ahead, uh, wherever. And but to do that, it moves the the cells on the cornea, the epithelium and creates stickness in the periphery. So a bit like that soft contact lens, you're looking through a clear vision, but it's creating this defocus in front of the retina just to slow the growth of the retina the other way. And yeah, so that and and now we've also got some glasses that are, are applying that effect as well. So yeah, that's that's our sort of um it's 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 really important because like I said it's about 20% of the population and it has yeah. these massive risks for later in life. But it's quite a hard conversation for uh, to be communicating to an 8, 19, 11, 12 year old and their parents. And then you talk about these sort of like risk ratios and like what does that mean? And are oh, those things are potential blindness when you're in your 50s, 60s, 70s. And it's that's a lifetime away. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what about the diet message? Like how well do people receive the idea that a crappy modern diet that they've been eating? is not doing their eyes any favour. Yeah, I think it, it, it's kind of like the, the cog, cognitive dissonance of the whole thing. Yeah. Like, it's it's interesting when we do the diabetic photo screening and it's a much shorter appointment as well, which also makes it difficult. And I've run into the odd speed bump every now and again of people not quite willing to hear it or, or sorry, or what it means. You know, you learn with which all of those types of things, but it's like everything you say, you get lots of head nodding, and then you get the sort of oh, but (laughs) yeah, 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 yeah. And I think it's a easier conversation with the person that has macular degeneration and is noticing their vision deteriorate than it is to be like, and you need to talk to your family about this, or like the case of a 19, 11 year old with short sightedness, you know. Get outside, get health, good, good sleep quality. You know, try be away from your device two hours before you go to bed in a perfect world, and that'll mean you have a bit of sleep. And they're just looking at you like, what? And you're like, oh, you know, and don't eat too much sweets and processed food. And they're like, oh, come on, man. <laughs> no, I know, I know. I had the same conversation with children and and their parents, and the parents roll their eyes, and the kids are like, as if, and the parents are rolling their eyes, not because they don't think it's a uh, non, not because they don't think it's valid, but because they recognise that they've probably got a battle on their hands to mm. instigate a lot of these changes. But Ryan, you know, you make such a great point. Like, it, it's the same with anything that 
we come across with regards to health, our eyes are responding the same way that our bodies respond in an environment of energy toxicity, mm. of a sedentary lifestyle, of too much screen time. Like we've spent like a slither of our evolution in this environment, yet health is going downwards because mm. of it. And our eyes are another example of that. Exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's you know, and it's really funny for me and my job because, like, I'm telling someone to get outside and I'm in a room that has no windows. Oh, no, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I always, always say it's the most ironic job in the world. Like, we flash bright lights in people's eyes. We block their focus. We ask them when there's something blurry and they're there to see. And, yeah, we're like, and by the way, get outside. And they're like, well, where's your windows? (laughs) I've been outside this morning and every lunchtime, well, not every lunchtime because it's been raining so much, but most lunchtimes I'm getting outside and and my brakes, like, I just sort of duck out the back door and and get some sunshine and just try to, you know, remind myself it's daytime. (laughs) Yeah, totally. So, um, Ryan, what about blue light blocking glasses so Oof. i i know i know and because uh, i have a, a a thing where i understand that a lot of the glasses that people might wear in everyday life are in fact blocking blue light mm. that they might need in order to get that um correct sort of circadian or hormone response so what's going on what's going on with all of our speak saver glasses yeah um no it's not just them <laughs> um so, so- <laughs> Sorry, Spicksaver. Yeah, Boots IKEA in the UK got sued because they claimed preemptively that it might prevent macular degeneration. And it's a bit of the case that there's no evidence. Yeah. And so you can't make those claims type thing, um, which which is tough. And, And I'm of the opinion that it's not doing nothing, but maybe the, but no. The effect is often over prescribed or over claimed. And, you know, there's there's a lot of, of verging on charlatanism with with, yeah. with the like, oh, you gotta, you know, you gotta block out harmful blue light. But light is is a spectrum of things. And like in the daytime, when you're outside, the same people that are saying get outside during the middle of the day, it's like, uh, what's the spectrum of light during the middle of the day? And when it comes to this myopia pro- progression, that middle of the day stuff, and then that those reds at the end of the either end of the day are really important. So it's 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 not isolated. But I think if you're someone that needs to do work in the evening, um, having blue blocking lens as opposed to just the regular spectrum of lens is not doing nothing. Now I've got flux on my computer, so everything's quite yellow right now. Um, I sort of, so I can show you, I've tuned my home button to be the shortcut for three times and I've got my um, screen to be like completely fluxed out in the red spectrum. So it's really boring to look at your phone as well. (laughs) Yeah, actually it would be. Yeah, Yeah, TV is actually quite boring watching it like that to be fair. Yeah, so I used to have grayscale, and I still sort of felt that like white light was quite sharp. And then my mate said, oh, "Try it, try it completely red." And so I, d- I do that. So yeah, like you, I think even Matthew Walker's changed his mind a little bit on evening light ex- light exposure. That he's he's not so convinced it's as bad as they initially felt. Um, but I, I do think it's like not 
it's not a non-zero thing. It's like, yeah. Yeah. I wonder, because I've said this a few times, is that, you know, I wonder if there are people who are more sensitive to it than others. But what about, Ryan, in the middle of the day, people have got their prescription glasses and they are blue light blocking, like they block the blue light. Like, is that a potential problem? Do you know Nigel Beach? I know who you're talking about. Yeah, we have have this little bit of a a laugh that, because especially when I go to one of his um, seminars and he talks about, you know, you don't need your sunglasses to go from your car, uh, so your house to your car in the morning and then your car to your office in the morning. Yes. You know, or to duck out for that coffee. Like that, that little bit of light is probably really good, particularly if you've been in the office. But, the the caveat to that is if you're playing cricket or golf or are in an orchard or a builder or a roof a roofer, you know, it's probably quite a good idea to wear some sunglasses and to protect your eyes, and right? Protect your eyes, like yeah, yeah. You know, um, there's a change on the eye called a pinguicular, where the um, the white part of your eye then has a jelly on top called the conjunctiva. People will know that from conjunctivitis, where you know you get the pussy red eye. And that conjunctiva continues to sort of exceed across the cornea, and it's called a pterygium. And the surgery for that is they basically peel it off and get a graft from under your eyelid and stick it on. And to a lesser extent, there's a thing called pinguicular, which is, and often it's people uh, on next to their nose on the white of the eye. It becomes all rough and raised, and they can get quite dry. So that's that's straight sun damage. Um, and then... Um, Basal cell carcinomas, um, mm. what's that? Squamous cell carcinomas. They're, they're pretty common in New Zealand, and um, one of the the ophthalmologists in Hawke's Bay, um, Liz Insull, she she was she had some images in, in the latest um, sort of textbook we have, Kansky, and she was telling us about she does a thing called a Y suture, where she will have to remove the melanoma and create quite a um, section away from from the eyelid, and then she'll just basically grab the cheek and put it up to the lid. And then she said, "And I also have this thing called the T suture, where I have to take you know into the cheek away, and I basically grab from the jaw, pull it up, suture it in place, and then grab that skin again and pull it up to the eyelid." And she's got she was showing us photos of that, and it's like you know, there's there's definitely a place for sunglasses, especially in New Zealand. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. So it's finding that balance between between not blocking all yeah, of that it's like spectrum safe sun, of light. Isn't it? But yeah, it's like safe sun, totally. It's the same with being out in the sun. Like you don't want to burn, but you need that um yeah. ideally you'd get that exposure. And and, and 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 Nigel's sort of argument as well, which I completely agree with, is we're sort of so into this sympathetic zone and and if you've got your sunglasses on, then your pupils dilated, um, and so are you driving that more sympathetic state by, you know, having having lower light conditions, and so your pupils are wider, and you know that that sort of sympathetic tones being driven a little bit to pull pull the um, iris open a bit more, engage that sympathetic muscle, engage your sympathetic tone. Is that sort of creating a little bit of feedback, and so that's why you're so clear sensitive because you're more into that into that um, sympathetic. Whereas if you have your your sunglasses off, your pupil's going to constrict, and then that's going to enhance your parasympathetic tone and maybe help bring your your levels down, your levels of anxiety and stuff like that down. So, yeah. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah, it's a it's a good thought experiment, and and there is there is a, a section of the world that that looks at. Um, 
light therapy for, you know, muscle tone, you know, things like infrared saunas and green lights and, and blue lights and stuff like that for helping out with conditions. And, and it's, again, it's not doing nothing, but it, it's also not main mainly done. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So Ryan, then sort of to finish up in your work, as you sort of see people and you see the different research coming through and just the research that you know sort of exists in the mechanisms, is it correct to say that we can delay the progression of most eye disorders that people might experience despite their genetic basis? I think uh, it's low carb down under from about 2017. There's a really good, that fish green and gold concept gets talked about. Unfortunately, I can't remember the ophthalmologist's name, but yeah, he talks about that, that fish green and gold can basically eliminate your genetic risk factors. Um, like I said about with short-sightedness, um, we have optical treatments, but that being outside in the middle of the day, that good sleep, good diet, good exercise can help to mitigate short-sightedness. Um, glaucoma, again, like um, good activity, good good health conditions, blood pressure, cholesterol, um, diabetes, not smoking should mean that you don't don't get glaucoma. So, um, if if you're not preventing it, you're you're mitigating it you know yeah it's 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 that whole thing it's not it's not nothing (laughs) yeah yeah and finally your um in your profession ryan are there many people that think in the way that you do about uh that we are all just one big complex system or are there people who wouldn't necessarily agree with some of the stuff oh i think I think if you you probed a lot of people that they go down that road, um, like I said, we we start off with optometry, looking at embryology and, and neurophysiology. So, but I I've sort of been writing about the diet and stuff for since two thousand and seventeen, and I haven't really had had the bite. Uh, I sort of see from doing diabetic photo screening and seeing bad cases of diabetes that like as optometrists we're in one of the most privileged situations to see the blood vessels we don't have to chop anyone open to see them um the retin is the most at risk of diabetes something like half of the blood supply runs through the retina in the space of 40 minutes and so if that's these inflamed um red blood cells because of diabetes then then you're going to get damage to those retinal vessels um and it's. I think there's an optometrist in the states that's sort of talking about low carb and things like that. Um, Australian of the Year in 2020 was ophthalmologist James Moinke, and you know he's been hard on the diabetes reversal um, news that that came out in Australia last year. I think him, Ray Kelly, and Michael Mosley did a um, series of, of TV programs on SBS in Australia, yeah. um, and. And like you talk with ophthalmologists and they are aware of the effects of diabetes, but I think there's still a lot of the medical model blocking the idea that, hey, let's go back a step and think about it as metabolism and reversal. And let's look at glaucoma and all the associations and think healthy lifestyle, what's healthy lifestyle, diet and exercise, you know, yeah. and, and the same with myopia, it's like, you know what's what's restrictive to my opinion. Getting outside, what are you doing outside? Being healthy. What's your mood like? Being good. What are you sleeping like? Being good. And so that means healthy mood, less my opinion. So, yeah, you know, I, I think the conversation's slowly moving that way. Um, yeah. 
but I, I sort of see the industry gets caught up in the fact that at the end of the day, people get prescribed glasses. And so that sort of makes people forget about, about the health. Like my mate Jugger sort of said to me on, on Monday, you're a real like retinal, re- medical retinal kind of guy. Because he's he's into this ortho K and myopia and, and um, what's called keratoconus. Um, you know, we didn't even talk about that. But yeah, <laughs> yeah there's so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, and so he said that to you and you were like, yeah, that's me. Yeah, I was like, yeah, probably is. <laughs> yeah, actually, it is, yeah. Ryan, awesome. Well, thank you so much. Like, it's – I never think about eyes only because – uh, right now, like I don't wear glasses, I don't need them. I think about blue light in eyes, and I think about when I talk to clients that they wear blue light blocking glasses throughout the day and, and things like that. But I haven't really even considered that what I'm doing now, uh, you know, and and I think about health and I think about the things I do and try in, in a health promoting way, but I've never thought that what I'm doing is protecting my eyes as well. Hmm. You know, I've never really given it much much thought, to be honest. Yeah, and it's. And it's been fascinating in Topol, like Glenn Davies is there um, trying to reverse diabetes. And then I, I sort of see uh, a lot of females come to the perspective that it looks like diabetes and hormones. Yeah. And I've been bringing up your name often. I'm like, well, if you want a similar but slightly more, uh, you know, female-centric idea, maybe check out Mickey. And oh, thanks. Yeah, so ho- hopefully the odd person comes in. I remember um, referring people to Dr. Steve Joe back in the day and then yes. I went and, went and saw him once and he said, oh, you can have this consult for free. I've seen about three or four people from you. And I was like, oh, amazing. I was like, oh, somebody listened. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. That is really good. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so where can people find you, Ryan, and, of course, your podcast and and your blog, which hasn't been updated in a Yeah, while. I just was writing one today. <laughs> yeah, I was like, shit. I, I was um, listening to uh, the guy Aaron Walsh on, on Tuesday. That's why I was in Auckland. And, yeah, he was said, oh, something that's been really good is writing and um, then writing helps you speak. And I was like, oh, gosh, I, I've sort of – started writing my blog and then I moved into podcasts and I've neglected the writing and, and the same like writing articles for for optometry publications. I need to get back to back to writing. Um yeah, so the blog is is stag stagryan.co.nz. Um, uh, the podcast is the Stag Raw. It's on like 13 platforms. It's on YouTube. Um I'm quite active on Instagram at RyanOconnorNZ yep, and also at StagRyan. I'm in my Twitter's at Stag Ryan, but yeah, if you go to one platform, you'll find the others. So it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty broad and easy to find. Check down. That is brilliant, Ryan. And your podcast is great, and you have such a good array of guests. Um, and of course, because we are both aligned in how we think about things, they speak my language, and I love it. <laughs> so, so thank you so much for that. Um, uh, and any last tips or tricks or anything that you feel that people should know? To end us on? Oh, things people should know. Um, I already said the 2020 20 rule. I loved that. I loved the, the fish, fish the, sorry, green the gold. gold. Yeah, yep, the, fish, the, green, and gold. Neither the, of these are my original thoughts. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The supplement as well, I think that's really helpful. Yeah, AREDS 2, we'll reiterate that one. Yeah. Um, I think just base, basically think about eyes like you would your teeth. Or you would um, an injury. Now I know a lot of people get injured and they go to the doctor, and I wonder why. But 
like if you've got an injury, you'd see a physio or a, or an osteo. If you have something wrong with your teeth, you'd see a dentist. If you have something wrong with your pet, you see a vet. And if there's something up with your eyes, see an optometrist. And a bit like going to the dentist to make sure you don't have a filling, go to the optometrist and make sure you don't have one of these things. Also, just raise your level of of awareness to think about what are my risk factors. Um, you know, if you've never had that conversation with your family about glaucoma or macular degeneration, have that conversation because it all of a sudden flips your risk profile. Same with short sightedness. Are there people in your family that are short sighted? Um, then your children might end up being short sighted. Um, and if you are short sighted and you've got children, there's a big risk that your children will end up short sighted. So yeah, basically get an eye test and look at look at that and hopefully it's like cool nothing to be done <laughs> that's awesome that's good it's, it actually it is it all just comes down to being informed about your health and everything that sort of goes along with that it's all sort of just part of that really isn't it yeah exactly yeah and don't buy those uh just those you know two dollar glasses from the warehouse just because you can't see anymore when you read actually go and get your eyes tested <laughs> they're not going to harm your eyes but they're most of the time not ideal <laughs> no well well you, you're not going to learn a lot from your from everything else going on are yeah you? yeah it might be glaucoma or macular degeneration where you can't read yeah. oh yeah that's a scary thought yeah. ryan thank you so much you enjoy the rest of your evening and i really enjoyed chatting to you and really appreciate the time you took thanks so much mickey you too Alrighty, hopefully you enjoyed that and definitely recommend checking out Stagmore Podcast. Next week on the show, we wrap up 2022 with uh, Dr. Cliff Harvey. He is a listener favourite. Until then though, you can catch me over on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin, on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, or head over to my website mickeywillardin.com to book a one-on-one consultation sign up to my recipe portal or check out one of my meal plans and you can also join the waitlist for monday's matter shredgerary edition which is coming out this february 2023 all right team enjoy the rest of your week see you later